Hi again, I'm Abby. I'm compulsive overeater recovering bulimic. Hi. Uh, thank you, Lauren, for asking me to lead. Uh, this meeting is extremely sacred to me. It's where I've been coming. I've seen you guys for almost 13 years. I consider um, kitchen sink um, the location of my abstinence state because my abstinence state is when I started working with my sponsor, which was February uh, 26, 2005. And this time of year, I think, is so funny um, for all of us addicts in any program. I'm totally stealing this from my Eskimo Hillary, but she made a funny joke recently that uh, after Thanksgiving, there's an influx in Al-Anon, and then after uh, Christmas and New Year's, there's an influx in OA. Um, (laughs) Which is my story, too. (laughs) Um, Because I came in, as um, some do, uh, after I made my New Year's resolutions in January 20, 20, 2005 that I was going to lose the weight. I was about um, 30 pounds more-ish uh, than I am now and uh, in complete and utter incomprehensible demoralization at not being able to figure out how to get rid of this 30 pounds um, that I didn't think I deserved to show up to my big life with these 30 pounds on me and if I couldn't figure it out, I was going to kill myself. And I don't say that lightly. I was, you know, I would be driving. I can't fucking figure this out. I'm a fraud. What would happen if I just, like, drove my car off the freeway? And those thoughts kept popping up, but that wasn't what got me help. I had heard about OA from my Eskimo Hillary about six months prior. And she had been my binge buddy in college. And um, we, I remember we were interning both in New York. And after our respective internships, you know, some people go out in the town. And I would do that later. But my favorite thing to do is we both walk across the street to the food emporium, load up on our binge goods, come back to the dorm, get high, and then binge and tell basically food porn stories. We just, like, switch <laughs> food stories back and forth. And that's, like, nobody else would get that unless you're a compulsive overeater that that's, like, how we got off. Um <laughs> So funny. So anyway, Hillary had found um, OA in D.C. and had been telling me for six months. I always joke she was not 12-stepping me. She was 12-stomping me into program. And if I know anything about uh, anybody telling me what to do with my food and my body, that's the surefire way for me to do the opposite. So I was definitely not going, and especially to a program with a name Overeaters in it, um, when I have such complete and utter body dysmorphia. So I didn't find that solution, but it was when... In January 2005, I had uh, decided to try a commercial diet program for the third time around. And I know people have heard me share this, but every Saturday when I got on that scale and I had gained, like, I don't know, eight ounces because of the crazy math that I had, like, the magical realism thinking that I'd hacked the point system and, you know, not eaten all day and <laughs> started the schlep from my desk to the snack room around four and it'd be like, had driven a groove in the carpeting to the snack room and then wouldn't eat dinner and I would come home from whatever evening work thing and just binge on weird concoctions that I would make that involved butter, a lot of butter spray and frozen vegetables because no point. Um, so that is crazy making, but that still isn't what got me into program and the incomprehensible, pitiful demoralization when I would step on that scale every Saturday. And if it said, I gained weight, which you did every time for those first, I don't know, three or four weeks of January 2005, I would go out into the world and look semi-normal, be able to engage with people, but what was happening behind that mask was just complete self-abuse and complete self-loathing and just I couldn't connect with anyone 
on a real level because I was just showing them this like mask that I was wearing. So that dissonance was causing the suicidal thoughts. But it wasn't until I binged at the office late one night on a Sweet Lady Jane product and I was left over from a birthday and I didn't think anyone was there and those big products are very rich so I definitely needed to purge so I went into the bathroom to purge at my office and someone walked in while I was purging and I don't know if they saw me I don't know if they recognized me but they stopped when they heard me retching and they turned around and they left and that was what God needed to have me scare the shit out of me to get me into program something that came between me and my career which has kind of always been the thing that will make me pay attention to my own health because many other things won't and so that was the catalyst for me getting to program in 2005 and went to a couple meetings I always share this because for people who are scared to go to Phil set meetings I was terrified you know I only knew what I knew from like TV and film of AA meetings it was like a lot of old white guys sitting in a church basement drinking coffee and chain smoking cigarettes and that was my impression of all Phil set programs and talking about God and I was like I'm not interested in that I just want to not feel I just don't want this food thing and so Hillary Maskimo, I like she talked me through it. I found it, uh, what I thought was an OA meeting at the log cabin on a Sunday morning, and I walked in in the middle of an AA, huge AA meeting in progress, and everybody turned and looked at me, and I freaked out. I was so scared, and I ran to the back where the kitchen is, and this is God, right? God showing up in my life, and I didn't know it at the time. There was another girl in the back of the kitchen who looked like she'd been shot in the face. And and I looked at her, and she looked at me, and she's like, are you here for an OA meeting? And I was like, huh? And she's like, me too. And so she's like, I, I, I think there's another one in Beverly Hills right now, Roxbury Park. Do you want to, like, go with me there? And I was like, oh, okay. And so I followed her to that meeting, and that was my first OA meeting. And that's God, right, showing up in my life. I wouldn't have known it at the time. I wouldn't have been able to articulate that at the time. But if that girl hadn't been in that kitchen, I would have been out the door and never gone back to that meeting ever again. Well, who knows, but that was probably, I wouldn't have gotten relief then. So that was my journey in the beginning, and that was in 2005. And over the past almost 13 years, it's been such a peeling of the onion. Um, Because what I found here, you know, yes, I came for the vanity Um, but he stayed for the sanity and the sanity I needed to get sanity first to start working the steps and my sponsor said let's not like let's put all of the weight and body image stuff in God's hands even if you don't believe in God because at the time I was agnostic I raised Jew conservative Jew but we had no God was not part of the equation we prayed to the God of achievement Um, and (laughs) which I will get to later and um, so I just acted as if I'm like okay people who have the bodies that I want are doing this stuff so I'm just going to do that which looked like for me three meals a day in the beginning and two snacks if optional just to stop that pendulum swinging of like the restricting and the binging and the shame and the guilt and like consuming my entire day and because I had life in between I had to actually start using the tools of this program which was writing, which I was loath to do in the beginning because um, my mother journals and she certainly gets no relief from her stuff. So I was like, ah, no. Um, But as a bulimic, I was finding that to get all of that stuff in my head out and not into a toilet bowl, I needed to put somewhere. And so writing became a really helpful exercise in the beginning. That was one of the tools I used in the beginning. Not meditation, even though everyone kept talking about it. 
praying even to something I didn't believe in at first and then I got enough clarity to start working the steps but my story now looking back and you know as I was saying like my story has changed now in the last three years and people always say and I always heard in program you know you're a newcomer for the first 10 years and I used to get really pissed off at that when people would say that because that sounds really condescending and really obnoxious and I was working in a pretty awesome program that I thought for 10 years and I was and I was working in exactly how I needed to but I needed to get this basis of um, new tools not my old broken tools to be able to like face what was at this core of the onion which took a really long time so the last three years has been getting to the last couple layers and the layers that I had to peel just to get really honest about what happened when I put down the food and food behaviors was as soon as I put down the food and food behaviors a toxic relationship popped up and you know I hear a lot about how you know food and intimacy is related and that's totally my story so the relationships I would get myself into were not quote unquote real relationships these are I now coined them ambiguous relationships I would get involved with a man who would not meet my needs at all, would suck me dry of like all the emotional support and like occasionally throw me a scrap. And that was like those cycles. This one like went on for three years. And I knew my poor sponsor, you know, I would just talk and talk and talk and talk about the same thing. And she, my sponsor, I've been working with the same person the whole time and I just feel so grateful for that I know that's rare and I that's God too because of where I came from to have someone just give me unconditional love and acceptance no matter if I was complaining about the same thing on every single phone call and she was just really patient and loving you know and she always says to me go where the love is and for those three years I was not going to where the love is I was going to where you know a lot of like instable like non-unconditional love was but that was my story but and I couldn't put it down so God saw to have me put down that relationship when I it was revealed to me that this guy was sleeping with my best friend the whole time that I was involved with him so that hit my shame button in such a way that I was like okay that's the t- that's the ticket I'm going to be done I'm going to punch that ticket I'm done with that um, so when I that got put down a crazy toxic job came up and this consumed me 24-7 this was a and I'll get to the hey, let's play in later um, I was working for a company and a man who is famously abusive and I was getting a lot out of it because I was able to control him and I was able to manipulate him as much as you can a monster and um, I was learning a lot and it was 24-7 and it was so toxic and what ended up happening the only thing I've done perfectly in, this, in these rooms is put my program first everything else has been you know touch and go at times but I've always put my program first and in the three years that I was working for him alcohol came up a lot because so, I would come home I was traveling all over the world I would have like five hour turnaround time like from when I had left him to like when I would have to go see him again and have to do all this work to catch up to make sure I was on point and I would come home into like stress I was just drinking a lot and that's when I did my first stint in AA didn't stick then um, but the one thing that got me out of that situation was when it was twofold kind of like what got me into program initially it was my OA recovery started slipping my weight, uh, weight went up. I gained 10 pounds in that job. My face was really bloated from the stress. And I couldn't get to meetings the way that I needed to. And lo and behold, because of all the travel, the one thing it did get me to do was start meditating. Because I didn't have access. 
I would listen to podcasts. I didn't have access to the meetings. I just needed more tools. And finally, I was willing. Even it started at two minutes. Literally, I was sitting on my bed in a hotel room in France. I was so at my wit's end. I was like, I will do anything right now. And that voice came in and was like, why don't you just meditate for like two minutes? And I meditated for two minutes. And just that two minutes felt like, you know, mental Xanax. And I was like, hmm, there's something to this. I see why people really enjoy it. (laughs) And (laughs) since then, over the years, I've built up. And I meditate now uh, 15 minutes a day. And it's, you know, I think of it as my mental dental floss. But, um... So, uh, yeah, so that job, I ended up finally leaving, and it was, like, extricating myself legally. It was challenging, and from him as well, um, when it was twofold. My OA recovery was flipping, and then, um, I mean, I work in Hollywood, and um, the most important thing to me, and why I do this, and I feel very lucky and blessed that I knew from a very young age this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a storyteller in some way. A really, uh, a storyteller I admired told me that I didn't know his movie well enough to be giving him notes on his movie. And he was right. And it cut me to the core in a way that I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. I was doing bad work. And for me, that was like, I don't care what, I don't care what other good stuff I may be getting learning from this man. This is, I can't be hurting filmmakers like that's just too much for me and then oh also because my only recovery was slipping it was time to go and so you know god i was like god please i need to get out of this situation i support myself i have since i was 15 um so i didn't have parents to rely on just to quit so you know god showed up in a job that happened like this i've been trying to get another job for a really long time and one of the things i've also learned over the course of these last 13 years is if I keep walking into a door that's slamming in my face, well, I should try and look for an open door. So, so this one job, door kept slamming in my face. And so then this one job happened, like, super easy. And so I, I finally got to leave, and I was like, okay, this was in 2011. I'm like, all right, I'm really going to double down on my OA recovery. I'm going to go back into outside help, and I'm going to really lick this, like, uh, me using other compulsive things to handle my life. And I went back into therapy, and I did this thing that I do every time. You know, obviously therapists are like, you know, let's talk about your childhood. I'm like, got that? Went, uh, already took care of that? I've been going to therapists since age seven. I, I know what's there. We don't need to revisit that. Check, check mark that box. Let's talk about today. Because <laughs> um, I know everything. And... And... Uh, <laughs> And so, you know, and we've been taught, right? We don't blame our parents for things, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, I'm responsible for my actions today. Let's address that. And so she's very kind, and she did help me uh, address, you know, how to achieve balance. And between her and another outside help that I go to for my food, they had been tipping me off to the fact that I perhaps had been in a state of fight or flight my entire life. And that being in that aroused state, that, like, super heightened state, you know, wouldn't sustain me and would start affecting my health at a certain point when as I got old enough and I won't get into the sciencey stuff of trauma and addiction but suffice it to say I'm really into it so if you are interested I can talk to you about it afterwards but um, they both gave me a heads up that it eventually adrenaline in my system would run out and I would start feeling the physical symptoms of uh, the life that I was leading at this crazy fight or flight um, place and sure enough 
things started happening physically that were tip off that I was not maybe integrated in the way I was dealing with my life. But I didn't identify them. I started having panic attacks. And I didn't know they were panic attacks because I also faint sometimes, which is a, also a result of all of this stuff. And so I drove myself to see. I'm one of those people. I drove myself to Cedars when I had a panic attack, and they did all the tests. And they were like, oh, you may want to, like, try some meditation and yoga. And I'm like, I do that. Um, <laughs> so find a medical reason that I'm, this is happening. And... Um, <laughs> Again, I know more the medical field, too. Um, so humble. Um, but then, so I didn't know what that was. And then, uh, so I kept on going. And this point, I had put down toxic relationships. The alcohol, I was not really going to. Now the last thing left was work. And I had moved into some jobs that were much more reasonable, but I decided to take to the next level. Because I had one big day job, and then I decided to start a side hustle. And my side hustle was a, I was working in a film studio in a senior executive job, and then I decided to create a television show, which ended up getting on the air, which is very unusual your first time out of the gate. And that was God. But now I had two full-time jobs and a program. And that was pushing myself to the limit, uh, physically, emotionally, mentally, still working, programmed, everything was extremely compartmentalized. Five minutes, thank you. And uh, so this was cut to literally exactly 10 years into program. January 2015, I'm going at this crazy pace, and um, my parents are coming into town as they do the long weekend in January. And I told them for years, this long weekend in January is not actually a vacation for me because when I work at a studio, I'm always prepping Sundance. And I'm working the whole weekend. So they would come in town and I'd be sitting in a hotel room working. But my mom's like, but I like coming this weekend, so we're going to come. And so this time, uh, I was like, no, this time is really bad because not only am I prepping Sundance, I'm prepping my show that's about to start shooting the same week. Mom's like, you'll make it work. Someone in program, when I was sharing about it, I said, I'm wise enough to share about these things. I was like, maybe you don't go to Palm Springs to go meet your parents. And I was like, I can make it work. And uh, it didn't work. <laughs> and I was down in Palm Springs, and for whatever reason, this is the time God wanted to lift the veil on some stuff from my childhood. And what happened was my parents were visiting their best friends. And these are people who I'd known since I was 12. And... The mother, Linda, was kept commenting on my, my mother's behavior. Like, why does you, like, look at your mother. She's dressed like a homeless person. And, you know, she keeps picking at you. And Linda had, had seen that I was stressed out and my sister was sick and was offering my sister a blanket and asked me what was wrong. My mother was with her mind and, you know, going off about how terrible my, her relationship is with her mother and no self-awareness that, like, what was what actually our relationship is. And then the final straw was when I like did this like eight year old thing and I went to go show them and my and them, their friends uh, the pilot presentation to my show and my mother wasted. It was like, this is boring, let's turn it off. And uh, then I found myself in the car with my sister hysterically crying. <laughs> and I basically had my form of a nervous breakdown. And my sister, who I'm super close with, and she lives here, and we're, she's my chosen family that, you know, along with my friends here. My sister, like, tapped myself, on the, and she's never seen me cry. She's five years younger than me, and I was always, like, 
essentially the parent to her. So she was freaked the fuck out. And then I was hysterical. I like, couldn't even breathe. And she's like, I think it's time to go get some outside help again. <laughs> and so the past three years have been uncovering of the onion of what happened in my childhood. Because my entire childhood and all my memories were about my first compulsive disorder that I developed. It wasn't food. Food came in middle school. I developed, um, and I always share this because it's the first thing I reached for. My little brain needed to check out. Um, is a disorder called trichotillomania, and I pulled out my eyelashes and eyebrows. And what it does chemically is it just checks you out what it does in your brain. And so I was just disassociating. I added food to the mix, binging, and, like, I realized in this past three years I have never gone to bed sober since I was seven years old because I was checking myself out with something since the jump. And once I started with outside help clearing away the wreckage of these memories of because I got a lot of negative attention for destroying my looks and that girl that beautiful girl my parents always talked about she's gone she had died at seven and now I was this freak and I needed to overcompensate in every other area of my life to prove you know that I was okay and what I learned was I wasn't the one that was not okay it was the family that was not okay and I was a symptom of the dysfunction of the family I learned my mother has a personality disorder uh, called malignant narcissism. And um, I think we all know what that feels like now because the leader of our country has that. Um, uh, So, sorry, I've had issue. But imagine being raised by that. So my reality was constantly being challenged. You know, if I wanted a piece of clothing, it was either, you know, I didn't deserve it because I was an ungrateful little bitch or, you know, some other thing that had to do with me not deserving it or else the Holocaust always came into play. Um, With Jews, I don't know. That was always, like, the last grasp of why, like, we couldn't have things and, like, the kids in the Holocaust survived, so you can survive, too. So, like, I was constantly trying to, like, hold on to facts because nothing... Everything felt like quicksand. Um, And what it did, it gave me amazing, amazing survival techniques. Survival techniques that I was able to bring into my career. And I would not have survived my career if I didn't have these survival techniques. So this was God too. Even my childhood is God. So I was able to see all that. And then I'll wrap up by saying, in last fall, I started getting contacted by reporters to start talking about and stopping the abuse of one of my former bosses. And it was a lot of soul-searching of whether or not to do it because it was at, could it be at a great cost to me. And then I'll wrap up. And only with the help of the people that I go to now, because program has taught me to have, like, I have basically an advisory board of people I run everything by. And I ran it through my little advisory board, and I ran it through God, and I decided to participate. And it was the most miraculous thing I've ever seen of what happened. Um, you know, uh, it started people talking about abuse in many different ways and I just feel like okay I can have the courage if I can have the courage to do it that way anonymously I can do it on a group level and talk to you guys about this stuff and um, you know maybe other people will get healing so that's why I do it thanks for letting me share This is the time for questions only there is no sharing at this meeting if you need to share please do so with any one of us after the meeting Also, please remember that the opinions of the leaders are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. I have to restate the question. I always forget this. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for being here. Could you talk about um, 
what tools you would use to uh, deal with and process and quell any kind of resentment you may have, especially towards like a parental figure. <laughs> Uh, thank you for that question. Um, so what the question was, what kind of tools do I use to process resentment and potentially anger, potentially at a parental figure? So my journey in the last three years, uh, the first experience, the first emotion that came up when I started uncovering this abuse was depression. And um, I started hysterically crying at random times, which for me, who had never shown emotion prior, was like that alarming the, th- the tool that I used for that was writing I just started writing like you know creative writing with no intention of doing anything with it and that was really helpful to just articulate what was in my head after that that's when the anger came up like rage like I've never been in touch with before and uncontrollable rage things coming out in my work uh, and I was shocked by the rage that was coming up and I knew that I had to put it somewhere and I didn't know where to put it so I do what I uh, always do when I don't have an answer to a question someone in program once said if you don't know the answer keep asking God the question so I kept praying to God that God I, I don't know what to do with this rage please help me put it somewhere and once again Hillary my little angel had invited me this was at the end of 2016 she invited me out to celebrate her Al-Anon birthday. And this time she claimed she was not trying to trick me into a program. Um, uh, <laughs> and so I showed up for an Al-Anon meeting and I heard someone share about this stuff. And I was like, oh, maybe this is what I need. Maybe this is the program that I need. And I started going to Al-Anon and that ended up not being the program that I needed, but it got me to another program to work through this anger. Um, and also it's called ACA. It's about growing up in uh, an alcoholic and dysfunctional home. And that's been, I've been working that program and that's how I've been with outside help trying to process all of this anger. And I don't feel like I'm enraged at any, every second. So that's been a huge gift. <laughs> um, you talked about your survival skills that you learned well thank you Cheryl uh, the question was what program tools am I using to deal with work well one of the reasons I had to face all this stuff is because work got yanked out from under me last year um, I got laid off in a regime change and in another studio I was working at and so my big day job was bye bye <laughs> and so I didn't have the day to day like 24-7 crisis management and I had a lot of time which is for a lot of us not great not great for an addict to have a lot of time because uh, then I'm spending too much time in my head I'm creating all sorts of narratives and the next thing you know I need to take the edge off so I had to find a lot of more distraction techniques that were healthy and um, I started I did the same thing that I do I did in the past which okay if work thing now is slamming the door slamming in my face God where do you want me to focus my attention so I asked that question and the only open door was like okay you're jiving full into creative to being a, a creative and so I started using this writing that I was doing as focusing my attention there and so that took up a lot of time with a healthy activity and then just other modalities that are outside um, 
tools of program uh, popped up that have a lot to do with calming my nervous system and I do healthy exercise. I don't compulsively exercise anymore. For me, exercise is one of the greatest gifts of getting all of that energy in my head out um, when I'm feeling really anxious and um, really getting disciplined with my meditation, my prayer and meditation, and just spending a lot more time with fellows. I had a lot more time. And one of the things that I had been doing was totally compartmentalizing my life. Work people were work people. Family origin in Chicago, mm-mm, you know, and um, fellows were fellows. And I finally started integrating all of that. And that's been my journey is like integrating and being honest with everybody about what's going on with my life. So that took up a lot of um, extra time. And, and being around fellows, lo and behold, like, I didn't have to put that mask up that I did in my Hollywood life of like, put on my armor with all these crazy people. Um, and so I don't know how I'm supposed to walk back into that world. I'm still in that career field, but in a different way. Um, but I think now I'm going to be allowed to choose who I work with instead of, that's what I, my intention is. And if God sees fit to allow me to do that and also make a living, I would really appreciate. Um, <laughs> so we're, right, that's where I'm at right now um, because I don't want, I'm not going into an abusive environment again. And that's just, I don't have the strength because I don't want to put that mask up. Can you talk about any daily rituals that you have? Yeah. Um, can I talk about daily rituals that I have? Um, the daily ritual that um, I was most loath to do in the beginning, uh, I did because I started doing because of vanity. Um, sometimes my vanity will get me every time. Um, but about three years into program, I had gotten enough space from the food, but with very loose, wonderfully like you know my absence is like comfy coat. Um, which is no binging, no purging, no compulsive exercise. I have definitions of what those are, and that's my abstinence. That's black and white. Then my food plan is, has evolved and changed over the years. And after three years in program, I was ready to like, be accountable to my physical health and ready to uh, not hear numbers. My outside health was going to be in charge of numbers. I was willing to listen to somebody who was talking about food stuff. Um, but I was also asking people in program who had physical recovery, what do you do, what do you do, what do you do? And the answer I kept getting back was I get on my knees in the morning. And I was like, that's a bullshit answer. <laughs> but if I've learned anything in this program, a lot of times the stuff that I think is bull, it really works. So that's how I started getting on my knees every morning. So that's the first thing I do. No matter what, I really try not to grab my phone first. I don't always do that perfectly. But I usually just roll off my bed and start doing my get on my knees and say the first three steps and the serenity prayer and the third step prayer and that's how I start my day and I, and I meditate every day imperfectly but that for me is such a huge gift of calm um, I'm making outreach calls as needed uh, te- texting as needed writing as needed uh, in my crazy crazy job I was still working in the tools so I'd be sitting even in a meeting with my lunatic old boss and she- Things would be popping off, and, and I would just text fellows sometimes. You know, this, there is some crazy shit going down right now. And so just a way to connect to people who were sane amongst a lot of insanity. So reaching out is a huge thing that I do during the day as needed. Um, I work with sponsees. I usually have about two sponsees at a time, which I do now. And that's been such a gift to keep me grounded and, you know, right-sized and give me perspective when, when things can feel like life or death. 
in um, my life, and they're really not. So those are some of the things I do during the day. Uh, what do I do when food calls now? Well, it's interesting. So in the past year and a half of a lot of time, and having been stripped away of some of my other compulsive behaviors, what came back? <laughs> my OG compulsions. Um, both the trick and the food. And I was like, ugh, it's tough. This is why we never graduate from these programs. It's always there. Um, and I had been reaching for comfort food uh, to take the edge off. And... Um, and I was like, I was being really gentle with myself. of like, okay, I'm not breaking my abstinence, but I kind of need a little bit of this to like, it, things are real rough right now. So I was just being really gentle and I was being honest. Um, I love, love, love that each step in tradition has a principle behind it. And the first principle is honesty. So I feel like I'm working these steps if I'm working the principles. And as long as I was being honest to somebody else about what I was doing with my food, then okay. That's what I'd had to be for a little while. Um, and I stuck to my abstinence, but I was taking the edge off a little bit. Lo and behold, I gained some weight. Again, vanity's a great motivator. <laughs> so, you know, when I was had a little bit more stability in terms of what I was dealing with, um, I just went back to what works for me, you know, and I was just really gentle about, like, I just need this a little bit right now. And right now I'm in a much more clear-headed place with the food and stuff, and it's for me, it's all game substitution. So if I'm not picking up the food, then i got to up it in some other modality because I, I just got to. That energy's not going. It's got to go somewhere. So that's what I do. Um, thank you, Abby. So your mom, um, you know, program teaches intellectual, you know, they did the best they could, but do you have emotional and spiritual compassion Thank you. Uh, do I have emotional and spiritual compassion for my mother? So I'm getting there. Uh, <laughs> uh, what's one of the, the things we hear in program? Awareness, acceptance, action. Right? So I had to get the awareness of this is what happened. I really didn't blame my mother for anything until three years ago. Right? I just thought, like, I was born broken. And I just had to accept that I was born broken. And my parents did the best they could, right? Of course they were treated me this way. They had a kid who was freaking crazy. And so that's what I believed. Um, so it's only in the last three years that I'm, like, doing a little finger pointing. And I've heard in program, we look back, we don't stare. But I needed to look back because I wasn't moving forward in certain areas of my life. And there was a reason for it. And so with outside help, doing the uncovering, letting all of that stored emotion out, I'm now getting to the place of like, I want to be in acceptance and I want to be in compassion and action, like active compassion. And so now, you know, I've just had to work through all of that stuff and I just set really strict boundaries of like, I don't want to be, my mother today is not the person that she was when she raised me. Um, five minutes, thank you. She had to go on medication around 12, when I was 12 and uh, due to the psychiatrist and recommendation. And then her alcohol came up, too. And so now she's like a drunken, pill-hopped dragon. Who, uh, <laughs> like, puffs every now and then, right? But it's not like full-blown, like, roar. So um, while I still have to have my guard up around her, I, I can see that she's a very, very sick, sick individual. And the image that came to me recently that's helping me have compassion for her, and I'm just going to share this, is, you know, we're big movie TV family. We always were consuming that stuff growing up and my mom's favorite movie that she used to show us is Dumbo 
and she relates most to the mother in Dumbo who is locked up in jail the entire movie and can only reach her kids with her like trunk outside of the outside of the window and know, like, knowing that that's what she relates to made me have a lot of compassion for her um, that she just feels locked in some way and what happened the reason she behaves this way is because of how she was raised these cycles of abuse that's what happens and so I'm now getting to a place where I can see like she has a, a mental disability and it's not her fault and she doesn't do it maliciously this is just you know her disability and so I'm getting there I'm getting there what that relationship will look like I have no idea that's up to God but I'm just glad that I'm not in complete and utter rage right now so that's where I'm at now So now um, you're recovering. You do, I guess, like especially in the evening to help combat that. Thank you. The question is, what do I, I said that I have never gone to bed sober, essentially, since the age of seven. And am I doing that now, essentially, also? <laughs> and what am I doing? Um, yeah, it's been challenging. It's uh, having to be willing to be uncomfortable. And so I had to, I like stripped away all the other things. I was using other substances to uh, um, help me sleep. And so in the last couple of months, I'm like, all right, I think I got enough stability right now that I can try this whole sober thing, going to bed. And there were a lot of nights where I just tossed and turned, a lot. And I'm just like, okay, God, if you want me to have a terrible night's sleep, that's where we're going right now. And I just had to be willing to be uncomfortable. And it took a couple of weeks. You know, I think they say like about three weeks to start setting new grooves um, for a habit. And it was probably about three weeks when I finally like started sleeping through the night. And so, you know, and I don't do it perfectly, let me tell you, but like it's a it's a one day at a time. Like, am I willing tonight to go to bed sober? Um, and again, like that witching hour after dinner before bedtime is like witching hour, right? So... <laughs> So I have to find other tools that I'm going to use to distract me so I don't use something else. So, you know, healthy tools, you know, whether it's watching a show I really like or, um, you know, again, connecting with people or going out, like to distract myself and then coming home and going to bed. You know, whatever it's going to take, I'm really gentle um, about what distraction tools, as long as they're not self-harming, I use to um, not go to the broken tools. Sounds like you have a reliance on your higher power. Could you talk about how that developed? Yeah, thank you. Um, sounds like Ellie said that I have a reliance on my higher power. How did that develop? Um, ooh, that was the question that got me emotional. Um, so I developed a huge amount of faith uh, by being able to see in hindsight that God had been taking care of me the whole time. So while in the beginning I was acting as if these daisy chains of moments that happened that are so, like, you know, some people call it synchronicity, like, unbelievably miraculous. I cannot deny that there is a presence that takes care of me in my life. Like, that girl in the kitchen at the AA meeting, like, I would not have gone to another meeting if she hasn't been there. Like, that was crazy. Um, stuff like that. Um, this stuff that happened this year of what I walked through, I was taking care of the whole time. Uh, I'll just talk about about one part of it. So I was really freaked out about this. I had agreed to tape a video piece for this stuff. 
And I was freaking out about whether or not I should do it. And I called my lawyer. And my lawyer, of course, was like, absolutely not. This is terrible. You Time's up. Okay, I'll finish up. You should absolutely not be doing this. And in my gut, my God voice, I was like, I think I need to do this no matter what. And it just so happened right afterwards I was doing a breathwork session with one of my friends who's now doing breathwork. And I showed up hysterically crying, like freaked out, not knowing what to do. And in this breathwork session, which was really challenging, I had a lot of resistance to it, one message came through and it was, God is your employer. And nobody on earth is my employer. God's always my employer. And that came through so strongly that I was like, all right, I got to do it. And I did, and I was taken care of through the whole thing. So, thank you.